Welcome to Mastering Agility. If you want to listen to authentic conversations with the most inspiring guests, find like-minded people in the Mastering Agility Discord community or both online and face-to-face events, this is the platform for you. Grab a drink, sit back, and join professional scrum trainers Sander Dorr, Jim Sammons, and their guests in an all-new episode. All right, welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to our virtual audience. Jim, how are you doing, man? I'm doing really good. How about you? It's the end of the week. It's a Friday night, and apparently I don't have anything else to do but record a podcast. So that's how I'm doing. I'm privileged that you- you're spending your Friday night with me. That That's awesome. I would... There are a lot more worse things to to actually do than spend my time with you. It's true. Every, Friday night, Saturday night, I don't care. True. But what what makes you so good? How was your week? You know, I just had a lot of conversations this week with with people, both professionally and in my life, and they were just good, like very productive. I feel like some of the fruits of my labor are paying off. Um, one really cool story to tell you that's hot off the presses is yesterday I was uh, working with a team and maybe we can get into this when the time's right today, but uh, I just got to show them how far they've came and show them that some of the things they're feeling, I can see it in the data. And it was a great way to connect some of the longer term efforts with some tangible proof, right? So, and and I beat we beat Bowser this week. So I... I we completed <laughs> as a family uh, Super Mario Wonder, so that was great. That's a big win. Uh, I'm not a big gamer, quick. but we picked it up, and within a week we're we're at the end, and now it's all about completion stuff. So, yeah. How about you? How'd your week go? My week went fairly smooth. Uh, I'll start releasing new episodes on on season six, so that's a that's a big plus. Uh, Obviously, mm-hmm. we started working with our new sponsor, Scrum Match, which I'm absolutely stoked about because they really believe in us as a podcast, which is to me is a really good validation. And, you know, it makes me feel good about the work that we've been doing. On the other hand, they have built a really cool product because there is a, uh, and I don't mean to to oversell the product because there's there's a, a, a commercial now in, in these uh, episodes, but mm-hmm. What I like what they've done is they found a niche in the sense that the market is overcrowded, right? With with Scrum Masters, with product owners, everyone has to do anything with Scrum these days. And they have built their tool that kind of filters out these people that pretend to know some things about Scrum versus people who actually know something about Scrum. So Mm. it's it's really a filter. And that's something that I really enjoy that we can have that collaboration with them. Um, Other than that, sorry, what made me think like you were talking about bowser you were talking about games i just bought a new game alan wake alan wake 2 it's a it's a survival horror thriller game and i was just playing this prior to this recording and it hits like it hits the spot really well it gets you anxious dude it really gets you anxious really okay i'm gonna have to look at this never heard of it and then i'm not gonna spoil shit but i really enjoy it if you're really into looking into getting yourself scared, it's startled, dim the lights, do this, do this stuff. Good to go. Nice. And they, nice. It's, um, it's part two. And I, I think this builds up to the riff that we can talk about in this, this episode as they improved uh, from the, from the first game and they started uh, taking little parts and bits from other games that the studio have built. And they started mm. looking back at their own process with, and continuously did that in, in the first game already. Like, what can we improve? How can we improve it? Um, and not sit on the, their laurels and just wait around for things to happen and, and, you know, bask in the success that they have created for the first game. The first game was massively popular already. And I guess that's, that's kind of the riff that I wanted to go to, as scrum teams seem to do the same thing in a less frequent basis, like skip retrospectives. It was one of the topics that I had in the, in the professional scrum facilitation class that I taught the other day is one of the, the events that's being skipped. The first is the retrospective and only when mm-hmm. shit hits the fan, kind of what we were discussing just prior to hitting the record button. If shit hits the fan, that's the only point where teams really start to use the retrospective to dig into what their problems are. But why do people do this? only when shit hits the fan and not when things are going right. 
Yeah, I don't I don't know. Like I mean, I think complacency is normal. I think people can grow overconfident and maybe maybe they're overwhelmed and they're like, look, there's only so many things I can worry about right now and everything feels like it's going okay. So let's just take that time back or let's just not worry about it. I mean, you and I likely do that in other parts of our life too, but we, we likely would not do it in the workplace because we probably thought about this far too much, but I, I, I see this all the time. And I had a team this week and kind of what sparked our conversation before we hit record was a team had a great sprint. They nailed their sprint goal a couple days early. They're really seeing the benefits of sprint goals. They're seeing the benefit of a lot of the things that, that we've been doing together as a group. And as such, it's not that they didn't cancel. It's not that they canceled the retro. I think there was just a little bit of a feeling by some of, eh, maybe it's not such a big deal today because things are going great. Yeah. But that's, that's the tricky part, right? If you become complacent, it's a, a, a retrospective is just a micro version of what the company culture could become like. Then you end up like classic Nokia, Blockbuster, Blackberry, whatever scenario that you want to use. Like if you fail to continuously adapt and improve, and even if things are going right, then you might end up setting yourselves up for shit down the line. Well, you know, and, and look, you and I both know, and any listener of this podcast knows, I think in analogies, well, I was on a, a health journey five years ago and I confessed to my surgeon a couple years ago, like, you know, I'm really worried. I'm stressed that if I don't keep my eye on the prize every day, I'm going to backslide. Like I'm going to eat one cheeseburger and it's going to lead to two. And then next thing you know, it's three months later and I'm eating entire pizzas and washing down with a, with a pitcher of beer. And he, and I expected him to, to say, no, don't worry about that. Go have the burger, have the beer, have whatever. And he goes, you're absolutely right to worry about it. Like, that's what I want you thinking like, because that is exactly what can happen. Like one thing turns into two and two turns into four and six. And before you know it, you've backslid. And he's like, you're going to recognize it. But many people, by the time they realize it, it's too late. Like, because it hasn't been five pounds, it's been, it's 50. Or it's not one cigarette occasionally it's two packs a day or it's maybe you canceled this retro because it went great and then the next one and then the next one you do in 10 minutes and before you know it it's three months from now you haven't had one and you realize well a bunch of shit's going bad now and now it's a herculean effort maybe to you know get back on the the fitness train or or the the clean eating or or team dynamics and that's where you and i come in right like have you do you play that role for teams where you're kind of that mirror for them and you're holding up the mirror and reflecting both the positive, the negative, and just reality? Yeah, quite frequently. Currently I'm not, but I've done that quite frequently in, in the in the past where I'm just every once in a while I would just drop by as a coach and just put my finger on the sore spot. Just, you know, twist the finger a little bit, twist the knife. Let's see where we end up with. And they are aware that they are not doing the right things. Mm-hmm. But they try to ignore it. Like, it, I'm just going to cover my eyes and pretend that you're not here. Because if you if I can see you, you can't see me either. Like, right. let's just pretend the problem's not there. And the exact same scenario that you just described, I was struggling with the same thing when I was losing weight. I lost a lot of weight initially, especially during the the first wave of COVID with the whole uh, lockdown situation. The first lockdown, I had a home gym. I lost a lot of uh, lost a lot of weight. Um, but it was all in, like it was super black and white. I was either all in or all out. And the moment that I even started to let go of my like my regular daily cadence and my, my schedule and my eating habits, the moment I would just take one cookie too much, it was gone. It was done. Mm-hmm. And then barbecue season hit and I gained the exact same amount of weight that I lost. And now I would start working more with a uh, sports therapist, a psychological aspects as well to balance these things out like the world is not going to die if you slip up a little bit uh a cookie or two it's not bad if you binge drink from one night it's not going to be the worst i mean you're not going to die overnight you're not going to lose your entire progress but it is about returning back to on schedule and returning back to those habits right and i guess that's where we come in as, as coaches just as i would was working or am working with a coach in that sense we are the version for that in 
with scrum teams or with agile organizations or wherever we want to work. Mm-hmm. We got to put people back on track and, and make them see the bigger picture again. Like if you're going to go down this path again, you're going to go back to the beginning, back to the drawing board and all the progress that you've made so far is going to be wasted. Yeah. Well, you know, when I was speaking earlier this week to, to um, one of your leaders from Zevia, uh, she was telling me about how, or, you know, her approach and how some of your colleagues approach agile transformations and coming in and things you will do and things you won't do. And I, I was super aligned with that because, you know, I don't want to yeah. get out there and say, well, I, I'm like some superhero and I'm going to come in and swoop in and fix all your agility. Like, I, I don't I don't see it that way. Like, um, because fixing makes it sound like something's broken. And yeah, maybe some things are truly broken, but I think a lot of times people just need help. They need support. They need uh, a mirror. They need somebody to just roll up their sleeves and help them. And I think that's what I really liked about my chat with with Monique is it was more about this is how we help people instead of people pay us to do something for them and then we leave. Like, and if we leave and they're in a, they go right back to where they were, they're back to a less than ideal state. I don't see that as success. Like, I think success should be, we leave people in a better state and we've taught them how to do new things or we've helped them do great things and they can build on that. Um, Yeah. And I think if you apply that to any aspect of life, it's good. Like, um, I found my my health journey, whether it's physical or mental, is really a game of inches. Like it's it's about habits, it's about the long term thing, and it's about no one day, like you were just saying, or one meal or one month. Even it's about habits and momentum and and all that. Yeah, and if you don't allow yourself to have these, either you want to call them cheat meals or whatever, if you just jump off the track. If you're not going to allow yourself to do that every once in a while, then it's not going to be sustainable mm-hmm. either because you're going to be so fixated on that, whatever you want to achieve, that you forget everything around it. And the moment they even set your foot like an inch out of the line, you get sucked out of it like a right. vortex. Yep. You're done. Yeah, like the whole floor is lava thing. Yeah, it's it's not like that. Um but I also don't like encouraging, and I know this is not what you're doing, but I don't like encouraging teams to just accept mediocrity or that it's okay to not meet our goals. Or it's a, you know, I think there's a balance between using failure or growth as a positive thing or a negative thing. And I think I mentioned this before, but there's a, a video on YouTube by Mark Rober about the Super Mario effect and how just changing the punishment or reward system for the same exact activity can lead to a different outcome. And I got a really interesting uh, opportunity this week to, I was observing a team in a retrospective, a totally different one than I was talking about just a minute ago. And I heard them, and I was just a face on teams, right? They were in a whole other part of the country. And they were talking about, we think this, and it feels like this, and I believe we're improving here. And I just heard all those soft words. And I said, well, I don't have to guess. So while they were talking, I logged into the our tool and i looked at the flow metrics that we've been talking about as teams things like cycle time lead time aging uh and all this and i was able to when the focus went to me say guess what i just went and tried to confirm your feelings and i can tell you you shaved 16 days off your cycle time in the last 60 days your throughput is increasing your quality metrics are increasing all these other things and i said so you should feel very proud of yourself and I hope, and I believe that they did, they took that as a really good validation that their feelings were in line with the data. And actually the data showed they were making far greater strides than they probably even would have, you know, assumed or felt. Yeah. Uh, that's one, right? Validating with data all for it. But then the second step that they need as well is like, what are our goals? And I don't necessarily mean just product goals. I mean, product goals and, and sprint goals are all good, essential, need that. But the same goes for how we want to operate as a team, like in the definition of awesome or however you want to discuss this. Like, what's the mental state that we want to be in? What's the required level of psychological safety? How do we want to operate as an organization? What What's the culture that we're trying to pursue here? Um, those aspects, I think they are vastly overlooked, which again, retrospectives could be a 
perfect opportunity for like the event itself you can use that to address these kind of things just focusing on merely product goals again leads away from the intrinsic motivation Mm -hmm. of people and i feel like that that's still something that we should discuss a lot more yeah so this idea of goals and okrs and all that okrs are starting to become the standard, right? Like they, five years ago, I was one of the only people it felt like in, in my circles and my clients talking about them. And now they're everywhere and they're not new. Like I, they're not, they're way older than, than five, 10 years old, but getting good at achieving goals is, is a skill and, and they're helpful. But I think it's, it's just like building features. Yeah. It can, start to be a negative thing where people are like, well, I'm going to just set 12 goals and I'm going to focus and run towards meeting all 12 or building the next 12 features or jamming more crap in our product or in our backlog. And and maybe you're getting good at delivery, but maybe that's exactly the wrong thing to do. And it's like, I, I think there's a balance. Yeah. That kind of behavior just makes OKRs okay. Mm-hmm. So how do you, how do you move from an okay to a goal that is more helpful. I feel many organizations treat OKR as, as more of the, the the new version of KPIs. Mm-hmm. So it's more of a regressive thing and a reactive thing rather than let's make this a bold and audacious goal. And we, we know we're probably not going to achieve it. But by the time that we're there or that we meet like the deadline that we initially set, we're going to be in a better state than we are right now. And I think that's the, the that's the point that people should use it like if you read the book a measure of matters by john Doerr, i think it pronounced it correctly like that that he describes the case where he applied it at google and google set absolutely ludicrous numbers for them uh, themselves to achieve right um just pulling these numbers out of my ass but let's say in in a year time they would like to have 35 million new users 35 million new users (laughs) is a lot like uh, those are numbers that most companies can only dream of and they never achieved 35 million, but they achieved like 29 million or something like that. Still staggering numbers. Audacious goals doesn't say anything about how to achieve it, but it's measurable. And I think especially the measurable part and, and, and how we can achieve that and the discussion around how we achieve that without providing pre-chewed food chunks, feature chunks to the teams. I think that's a, that's still an overlooked aspect as well. Like, we discuss OKRs as a standalone thing. We discuss Scrum, but how we should change the system around it. And what what kind of things we should provide to make this framework work for people and not just for the company itself. I think that should be the next level of conversation. I think most companies right now, if you look at crossing the chasm, we're on the late majority, uh, the late adopter side. And I think now the conversation should start to shift more to A to product. And I think that's something that we see in the market already. Uh, but as well as like, how can we make sure that people are getting the right foundation, the right environment to actually thrive and make sure that these things happen. And if I say these kind of things in organizations, they're all like, yeah, that makes sense. We're doing that. We, we are aware. But they're not acting like it. Like They know, but they behave like they still want to go into the dark ages of yeah. Yeah, I mean, so much of that is just, it's what people know. It's its how they work for so long. And it, it's easy and comfortable to slip back into, you know, management by objectives or just, you know, the old Dilbert strip of management by walking around and, and you know, all the funny <laughs> stereotypes and tropes of comics and stand-up comedians and all that stuff. And every movie, you, you, it seems like you watch, right? Because it's easy um, to fall back into those traps. And I was just teaching uh, the product backlog class. And we, you and I have talked about that at length. And one of the best conversations during that class was around the use of goals, like product goals, sprint goals, OKRs, all that stuff. And um, it was it was just good to hear from you know eight ten other people what their experiences are and how goals are helpful or not helpful. I think that the majority of the class agreed with me uh, and my take on it that goals should be specific. That ambiguous goals like we're going to get better at this aren't that helpful. And 
It, exactly. How do you measure get there? Now, what I will say, though, is if you think about an audacious goal, because, I, you know, I'm, I don't know. I'm thinking about what you said with like 35 million or I remember like seven years ago, I was at a company and they were like, all the engineering heads would always tout stuff like, did you know LinkedIn releases every seven minutes and Facebook releases every 20 seconds? And I'm like, dude, we release twice a year. So the chasm between twice a year and every seven seconds or seven minutes or whatever is too far. Um, it, I don't know. Like, I don't know how I feel about audacious goals down at the, the team or the product level. I got to think about that. Yeah. But I like the, the example that you now pull up, like uh, releasing every 11 seconds or what the number, whatever the number was. Because I pull those numbers up as well during my courses, but there I add an additional element, and mm. that's the customer absorption rate. None of the, these numbers add anything. They don't say shit about value if you don't know how well your con- customers are able to consume the features that that you push out or the outcome that you're trying to achieve. Like all fun and games, even if you could release every single second, but if your customers are only able to you know consume these these knowledge or these chunks of features or whatever you're pushing out every two weeks then the whole cadence that you've built up doesn't make any sense either because you're just overflowing the system and the cognitive overload of these people of your users and your consumers you're just yeah well you know one of the themes of my week like my, my week's had a lot of uh really interesting discussions. One of the themes though has been metrics. Like and people seem to be wanting one metric to rule them all. Like if I could only have one metric or one dial or one chart or graph or whatever to look at, Jim, what would it be? And I'm like, I got bad news for you. There is not just one. And earlier this week I had a regularly scheduled appointment with my my um investment advisor to just talk about like my retirement it's you know it's coming into the end of the year and i'm sure i'm just a checklist item on his calendar or whatever but it kind of hit me when he was going through stuff that he couldn't even show me my simple financial picture in one chart it was well you got to look at this and you got to look at this and you got to take into account you know the war in ukraine and you got to take into account the current war in the middle east and you got to do this and it's like that's that's what I find myself telling leaders all the time is there is no one metric. And if anybody who tries to distill all that crap down for you and give you one thing to look at to answer some very difficult questions or to make big bets or investments, I think they're doing people a disservice. Listen, if there would be only one metric to rule them all, life would be freaking oh, easy. Oh, absolutely. You would be out of a job, dude. I, 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 absolutely. And, and, you know, we talked about a couple times this week, you know, well, let's look at some flow-based metrics and then let's look at some quality metrics. And then, but that's not even enough. How are people feeling? So then we added in some subjective emotion-based metrics. And I think it's pretty quick to see for most people that you can't look at any one thing. You got to kind of mentally or literally lay them over the top of each other and say, how does the last month look? And it might be like, well, from a speed perspective, it's this, a quality perspective, it's this, a people perspective, it's this, a customer perspective, it's this. And if you like what all of those things are showing you as a whole, then great. But I don't know, do, do you get into that type of stuff within, in your work where you're... Okay. Less than I would like to. Like usually we, I try to optimize the system obviously, but it's more about what can we do better with the product and we have all these metrics. And uh, I think in the recent, let's say year to two years, there's only been one organization that had a million metrics and they all made sense. They really made sense. And I, all the other organizations I've worked with, they had a million metrics as well, but in, in 90% of those cases, I was like, why the hell are you measuring this? Like, you know, the traditional velocity or the amount of output or uh, all those vanity metrics. Like, why are you measuring this? It doesn't really add anything to your delivery of value. We, we, we can increase the, the, the output, right. the number of things that you deliver. We just create smaller chunks. Sure. We can increase the, the velocity, yeah. the notorious velocity, but it's, it's more like people are still organizations are looking for that magic framework that's going to fix everything. And it's the same with, with the metric itself. Like 
how many metrics do you need? What? Well, what do you want to measure? Why do you want to measure it? Like, especially that question is, is, is one that's rarely being discussed. And it's the same with, with frameworks. Like, why do you want to use scrum? Because we want to speed up delivery and we want to. Well, and I remember talking to my uncle Mm, who was a pilot and he, he flew in the military and then he flew commercially for one of the big airlines. And, you know, they have to fly with instruments only. But he would tell me nothing beats being able to look out the damn windshield. <laughs> so you you have to be able to fly by the data and fly by your 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 metrics, if you will, <laughs> and your instruments. Um, but nothing beats being able to look out the windshield and see what's ahead of you. And you have to balance all those things. And some inputs are more useful than others. And exactly. You know, I know we've been talking about like in the chat, there's a great question or idea around like, what if we build the the perfect thing? Should we assume that people are going to buy it or that they're going to like it? And I think history is full of examples of maybe really good things that were either at the wrong time or things that were, were maybe uh, unequivocally good, high quality, but nobody liked them. They were a flop. No, for whatever Look reason, Google, Google was eyeglass or what's the what's the glasses that they built? Yeah, Google, Google Glass. That that's the thing exactly. Like state of the art shit looked awesome, was wonderful, uh, was fairly expensive as well, but no one really was. You know, there wasn't really any market for it, no demand. And then you can have the, the most awesome product ever, and you can go into Minority Report shit. But if no one's going to buy it, then why the hell would you use it? And I've said this, I think I've said this in, in multiple episodes in the past, but metrics itself yield no value. It's mm-hmm. really how you decide to use them and what kind of discussion you have around them that, that's going to lead you to value. Metric itself just create transparency. It has no value. Yeah. And there's okay. another que- great question in the chat. Like, how do you support traditional leaders in changing their mindset from output to outcome? What do you do with that? Well, when, when that question came in, my first thought was, because I've done this recently, is I'll, I'll ask a leader, can you imagine a time when all that work gets done and that project is green on your, on your backlog and everything's going good and nobody gives a shit and nothing is different? And almost every time they say yes, like I can imagine that. So I try and help them see that just doing something or just producing output or even just doing something really well at a great quality, if it doesn't have some sort of tangible outcome, it feels like waste. We should at least get curious as to say, why, why, why are we so focused on it? Or why are we not caring more about the outcome? Yeah. Or what if you wouldn't do this? I know. And that's the thing. I remember you and I talking about that when you were here is people are so quick to add work to their backlog, but they hate as, as a, you know, I'm, I'm speaking with a broad brush here, but many people cannot wrap their head around the idea of deleting work from their backlog and saying no to work. And I, I, uh, that's a skill. One of the things that just now pops to mind is, I caught myself having a lot of FOMO the other day as well. Like I want to do everything. I want to be omnipresent. I want to do everything at once. And, you know, I see my friends, Arthur Marganari, Chris Stone, go to speak at all these conferences, right? Multiple a month. And then they're here in Nebraska. And we were like, Tom and I were supposed to be in, in Azerbaijan right now as well. But unfortunately, uh, that didn't happen. Chris and, and Arthur are there now, right now. And like, I want to be there too. I need to do this. And then they see Jeff Gothoff do these all, all these cool things and then they see someone else doing all these new things and I'm mean, like why did I not think of this mm-hmm. and it creates such a mental pressure as well from a perspective of I, a feeling of I have to do this but on the other side as well like you cannot this is not a sustainable pace either and it's the same with work. Mm-hmm. It feels like we're trying to cover all of our options to make sure that we are that our backlog is omnipresent and we just cover every potential risk that we have. And God forbid that we take one out and that's going to be the exact same thing that's going to prove our product to go down. This, But it's never around like 
what should we filter out? How can we learn what the right tracks are and what are the least useful features in our backlog that we can remove in order to create focus in that backlog and to do maximum outcome with the least possible output? Yeah. Mastering Agility only works with organizations aligned with our values, and that's exactly why we are excited to work with our sponsor. Scrum Match is the free platform for professionals run by professionals. On Scrum Match, true Scrum Masters get hired by companies serious about the popular framework. The awesome people behind this platform have decades of experience, among them a professional Scrum trainer for Scrum.org. They have interviewed, trained, and coached hundreds of like-minded people, and they use this exact experience to make you stand out from the crowd and help you get in touch with companies looking for true Scrum Masters. So go to scrummatch.com and sprint to your dream job. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I don't know, maybe everybody does this, but one thing I think I tend to do maybe a little bit more than the average is think about stuff like you were just saying, like looking at other people and what they're doing and what do I want to do and what, what's possible where it's, what's reasonable. And people like you, people around me, give me a lot of advice, say, Hey, give yourself grace. Like you're, you're doing a lot. You don't have to do everything and all that. But I, you know, I'm my own worst critic, like many of us. Um, probably would agree with that. But this week I was thinking, somebody asked me, who am I envious of or who who would I like to emulate? And it surprised them to hear that the answer wasn't some tech CEO or it wasn't some billionaire or whatever. I said, you know what the type of people I get really, and envy is not the right word, but that I would like to emulate is when you see people and they said, this is my life's work. Or this is my, this is my passion. This is what I do. This is why I'm here. And and it could be maybe they're an artist. Maybe they make pottery. Maybe they are a chef. Maybe they are a crap. Maybe they are just just a worker. But their their life's work or their life's passion is something. I, God, that is so motivating to me because I feel like at 46 yeah. I haven't found that yet. Like there's things I'm good at. And there are things that I will likely do for a very long time, if not the rest of my life. But I don't know if I would say I have found that thing that is almost synonymous with with like me, like that. That's my thing. Would you say you miss? A, would you say you miss a sense of fulfillment? I, I don't. I don't know. Like it's hard to miss what you've never had. But I, when I see those people, they seem very content. They seem very at peace. Because they're not looking, yeah. they're like, it, it's almost like um, they've achieved, they found the thing and then leaning into a whole life of experiencing the thing is is ahead of them, right? Whether that's five years or 50 years. And I don't know, like that's interesting to me. It is. What, what kind of job would you do if you wouldn't be doing the thing that you're doing right now? Mm. I, I've been asked that a lot. I think I would love to do something in the realm. I can only speak broadly because I, I just don't know what I don't know, but I would love to do something with the environment and not, not like lobbyist or whatever, but I mean like literally getting out there and being involved in the sustainability, self-sufficiency, um, recycling, one of those kind of areas. Like when I'm outside and I'm looking at, um, consumerism and plastics and and gmo this and modified everything and all the chemicals and all that i just like i'd love to do a project in that area or work on a product in that area yeah i think it would be a an interesting question to our virtual audience as well what other job or what kind of different things would you be doing if you wouldn't have the career that you you have right now curious what your answers are going to be i think i would be doing something in fitness or something i used to want to um, become a formula one driver before i became too tall too poor too fat <laughs> too lazy and all the other things that you don't need to become a formula one driver like if you see these these actual drivers right now like they're i don't know what the conversion rate is into inches and foot but um, they are like one meter 50 one meter 60 something like that like five foot, five foot 10, something mm-hmm. like that, really small. 
They're very light, and I'm the exact opposite. You are. He's a lot bigger in person, everybody. I'll tell you. He walked in my front door, and I'm like, holy crap, I need to extend the door frame up. Yeah. You're probably not going to fit in a Formula One car. No. 100% guaranteed. It doesn't fit my frame. I'm 196, so that would be six foot four, six foot five, something like that. I weigh just below 100 kilos, so 220 pounds around that area. It doesn't fit in these cars, dude. Yeah, it doesn't. Well, you. Know, I would just drag the whole car down, like make it slower a lot. Yeah. Uh, one of my old bosses had a Lotus Esprit, which is a very small sports car, like an yeah. Italian sports car, I think. At the time, I was huge. I didn't even fit in the car. Like, there's no way I could have driven it. It was enough for me to get in the passenger seat. Now I'd love to do it, but man, that thing was so tiny. It felt like a toy. Getting in that car felt like a toy. It felt like I was in one of those they are. those things that you can buy at like the, the Walmart or whatever with the tiny little 12-volt battery in the back of it. I, but they are super small. Yeah, dude. absolutely. And they're light. Um, one of the other ways I would answer your question is it is one of my life's goals to have have a book right like i've been a lifelong reader and i don't know if i've even lived long enough to have enough interesting stuff to put down between front and back cover but that is truly one of the things that um i want to do i don't think that's something i would ever get paid for as a job but talking to jeff got help uh, a couple weeks ago was re was invigorating for me to hear and like I, I love that episode. I, I was excited all week knowing it was going to come out because I, I haven't even listened to it because I'm worried that my audio wasn't great because of where I was. But man, I just felt so good after hanging up with him. Like I couldn't, I was buzzing for two hours. I couldn't go to sleep even though it was 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> uh, it was a wonderful episode. Good. Then maybe I will go listen to it. No, I, I really love the episode. I think Jeff, Jeff in general is a really good dude. He has a lot of knowledge and I think it's, Firmly untrue, which just said about not having sufficient to put into a book. Because if there's something that I've learned from, well, I've written about a hundred articles right now, and I'm not saying they are the best, but something that I did learn is that people really do not care about the content to some extent, of course. Mm-hmm. What they're more interested about is your personal perspective and your experience and your way to deliver these messages. Mm-hmm. Like if you're going to be super straightforward in two single lines, is uh, don't compare velocity and 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 uh, across teams. Yeah, sure. All right, get the gist. Why not? What's your experience? Uh, the way that you deliver with a good sense of humor, for instance, usually resonates a lot better. Um, personal stories to it. It's kind of like the way that we build and construct our answers in in professional scrum classes. Like this is what the theory says. This is why. And here's a, an example that I experienced mm-hmm. and how I applied it and what I did to recover. That's what people are curious about. And I am convinced and you cannot convince me otherwise that there is not sufficient in the big, beautiful brain of yours to build a book around. No, I, I'm sure there is. Um, but yeah, it's maybe it's not, maybe it's just not the book I want to write. Like maybe, maybe I don't know. Or, uh, um, Mar- Marge commented in the chat, her dream job would be working with supporting people less fortunate, i.e. helping refugees. And I I think that's great. Like, I think many people want to do things like that. You know, like for me, maybe it's the environment for her. It's people less fortunate. I I would love to work with animals. Like (laughs) I, that used to be my answer to the joke is I want to do everything I'm doing right now, but with animals. Like if you can find a way to connect me to do what I'm good at, and what people tend to find valuable, and I can do it somehow with animals. Oh man, I I'd I happily work 10, 12 hour days or more to do that. Like, and that's what I find so interesting is when you talk to 100 people, you get you know 50, 60 different answers to this question. And I like to file that away for the people closest to me and say, you know, I can't promise you I'm ever going to be able to find an opportunity for you in in working with animals or working with people less fortunate. But man, if, if I know that that's their goal, I, I try and keep my ears and eyes open for stuff like that. And baby panda nanny. So Sabrina, it's a real thing. Pandas aren't pandas well, really angry. Jim, you've got, you, you've, like, aren't they mean? No, no they're not. I thought they no. were. Maybe it's koala bears. I'm thinking of. 
One of those animals that everybody super, thinks is soft clean. and squishy is actually like wanting to eat you and scratch you and bite you all the time. Maybe I think it's koala bears. Yes, those are okay. koalas and the other trash pandas that you've got over there. Oh, yeah. We've got raccoons over here and, you know, they're, they're, they're great to watch. Yeah, they're, they're not the nicest. Um, they can be cute. They can be cuddly. They can also be vermin you know carrying disease and all that stuff so you got to be careful yeah they're rabies hoarders yeah absolutely you look super cute over there i don't need you here go away yes go be cute somewhere else i find it cute when animals try and use their paws as little hands and that's what trash pandas are great at right like that's when my dog tries to act like a human and like Oh my God, dude. I got to tell you this. I don't know if our audience will care, but <laughs> since I already told you I was playing Mario, my dog has never seen me play a video game that is as frustrating as a Nintendo game. Like, I'm so glad my current dog was not around back when I was a kid playing games growing up. But she would literally put her paw on my arm to, as if to say, like, calm down. It's okay. It's okay. I'm here. Like, when I would just get frustrated that I died or whatever. And, you know, obviously I'm an adult. So I don't like throw the remote across the room or anything, but. You know, it's so maddening to do the same thing 35 times and not get there. And my dog just, it's cute. She has no concept of if I'm truly angry or upset or if I'm just tired of dying. Frustrated because the water some level. super mustached plumber just got wrecked by another Goomba. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> yes. Roxy is the best though. Yep. She's pretty cute. But we've... we've Derailed into way too many tangents here, dude. I don't know. You always tell me the tangents are the value. But so let's come back. You want me to ask you a tactical question or do you have somewhere you want to go? No, tell me. Bring it. It's Friday. My 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 brain is fried anyway after this week. So bring it. So here here's a here's an open question to you and the audience. And I would love if anybody's got answers is as soon as any company or team has more than one tool, they have a problem when it comes to data and reporting and transparency and all these things. And I've been spending a lot of time over my last few weeks around what are the tools out there in the world and what are the techniques and things um, to help people bring multiple things together so that they can have a more full picture. Now, look, data integration is not a new thing. This problem's been around forever. And luckily in 2023, there's a whole bunch of no-code tools that even a dummy like me can can make work. But I'm just curious, separating the grain from the the chaff here, like what are the the things that you found helpful or seen be useful at, at clients around this problem? Mm, oh, that's a good question. Usually the first thing that I like to do is eliminate any kind of waste that we have. So really focus on what, what are the most essential things that we need to measure. Okay. Or that we need to validate and start with that, like focus on those. Whether the least useful things, skip those. Okay. Start, you know, like what you would do with your product backlog if you would have a lot of bloat in there. If the if you gotten to a point where they're more like a marshmallow, start removing shit that doesn't really have value that might look nice, but it doesn't really add to the core that we're trying to achieve. So again relate everything back to the to the whole core purpose where we're trying to achieve with our product how do we measure that how do we validate our assumptions and what's the easiest thing to do and um yeah i think there's there's a craze over tools as well going back to the agile manifesto individuals and interactions over processes and tools i think in many organizations it's still processes and tools over individuals and interactions yeah well, and I think tool, you know, there's there's more value in the things on the left, but the things on the right are still important. And, you know, like, here's an example. You talk to a product owner, you're like, do you have a backlog? Yeah, I got a backlog. Where is it? Uh, it's in Jira. Okay. Is that everything? So everything's in one place. Well, no. They got a ticketing system at play. I've got my spreadsheet. Yeah. Spreadsheet so I got, I got all my, my P1s, my P2s, P3s in, in, in a ticketing system. And I'm like, okay, so is that it? Is it those two things? Well, no, I also have some things sitting in email and teams that people have sent me. Okay, is that it? Well, this one team over overseas, they use a different tool. So their stuff's in Azure. Okay, is that it? We're at like four or five now, is that it? 
well, I got this spreadsheet where I capture some crazy ideas. I got a Notion notebook and I got these Post-its and Sharpies on my desk. So it doesn't take very long until you can get to three, four, five, eight, nine tools. Now, obviously, Post-its and Sharpies, we can't do much about, but, and, and I agree with you, eliminating the sprawl is a good technique, but what if you can't eliminate all of it? And don't give me it depends. It differs? It, he, found, he found a loophole, everybody. I know it differs, but... And it's a rhetorical question, sort of. I mean, I, I'm asking the ether, right? I'm asking the wider audience. But if it, because I don't want to spend an, a ton of time talking about tools on another episode, but I'm just asking for like, is there any tips that people would give around this type of scenario? Uh, the, the thing that I catch myself repeating over and over is kiss. Keep it super simple. Mm-hmm. So we tend to solve like one tool's flaw with another tool that might have like the, the, the might bridge that little gap, but adds a whole nother mm-hmm. realm of possibilities over there. And then before you know it, you're in a tangent of tools, like you build, build yourself a little spider web. So try to unfold, unwind yourself from the whole worldwide web of tools. I guess that's, that's, that's my main issue that I usually have like there are so many things that have a lot of functionality that don't really really add things that you want to have like there's there's a whole lot of useless features in yeah. there so you end up in a feature soup in the in a tool soup if you will mm-hmm. yeah yeah I definitely don't like using tools first to solve issues that should be solved by elimination or or that it's just yeah, it's a struggle because as the work gets more complex, yeah. um, people find new ways to make it even more complex. And I was looking at GitHub today and I found a backlog on GitHub. Somebody's like, oh, well, that's on my backlog. And I looked and yeah, okay, they have like 47 things in a GitHub backlog. I, I didn't even, like, obviously I knew you could create a list in GitHub, but I I haven't had any clients where like that's their primary place of storing work. It was great. It was well organized. Mm-hmm. Just yeet. Yeah. You know, my, my issue is with, with tools like Jira, and, and I'm not saying the intentions behind Jira are bad, not at all, but it's so easy to mistreat your product backlog or whatever you're using it for to build a diary, to, to add so many details that you don't need. Like, just freaking talk to people. And it's like with, with uh, the comment in the chat, people inter- and interactions, if the tool is hurting our interactions, I'll replace it often if I favor something right. simpler. Yep. Yeah. That, that, that's good. That's it's, a good tip. The value is again, is in the conversation, just connect people, just talk and make sure that you, again, with the whole purpose, that the whole purpose of these events in scrum to inspect and adapt and make sure that you have a conversation and that you are aligned. It's not that hard. And of course, tools are useful to either store some data to, to build some metrics or uh, I mean, uh, uh, what's the word trends, those kind of things. And, and the things that we as humans are a lot uh, worse at predicting or creating, but it's, it's, it's so easy to overcomplicate. And I things. think it's simple to overcomplicate. But, but, and I think that's where the, the power of tools is, is they can help us see patterns and complex things that we can't see with, less robust tools. So uh, I couldn't have validated some of my team's emotions or beliefs without having data. And that data is only as accurate as the use of a tool. So I think there's benefits, right? It's, It's not that tools are bad, but, you know, you were talking about this video game that you like, and it's the second iteration. And, you know, there's one of the franchises that I used to absolutely love in the video game world was the Call of Duty franchise. And it went through a period of every game got more and more complex and more and more menus and more and more of everything to the point where I'm like, I, I just don't know if I can get yeah. into it. Like you've taken something simple and it, it hits this sweet spot of enough and then it moved into too much. And I think we probably all have those examples where something that we used to love gets ruined because people jam too much in it whether it's a restaurant with an ever-growing menu 
or a car with too many buttons and knobs and things that struggles to just do normal car stuff or um, a video game or whatever. And understanding simplicity, I think, is important. And simplicity is not easy. Like it is very hard to create a modern, robust, highly valuable product in this day and age that is simple. Correct. But if it would be easy, then we would have a lot of mega corporations. Uh, that's a question that I wanted to ask you earlier. Now it comes back. Uh, do you think with the complexity and all the challenges that we have in changing people's mindset and behavior, and it's really hard for, for people to adapt and to, to, you know, to improve down the line, do you think large conglomerate organizations still have a place in the future? Because these are the ones that have the most challenges really changing. Yes. And I don't know if this is why you're asking, but one of the, like, God, I just wanted to reach through the screen and high five Jeff when he said this on our chat was around these big companies and his work with people who have only worked at really big companies and they become institutionalized. So anyway, that's a whole other discussion, but yes, unfortunately, I think megacorps are here to stay because growth by acquisition is one of the most common M&A strategies. It's one of the most common growth strategies. And it wasn't that long ago. It was probably like, I don't know, five years ago when you used to go be able to log into Amazon and see all the brands that they have bought up over the years. And I mean, they, they gobbled up hundreds and hundreds of small companies. Uh, one of the banks I work with, with back then, this is a few years ago, was made up of over 1,200 smaller banks. So that's here to stay. Like the big guys are always going to eat the little guys. And honestly, it's one of the the strategies when I talk to executives, when I ask them if they're afraid of their competition, they say, no, we're watching them. And if their product ever gets too big, we'll just buy them. And yeah, I mean, that, that confidence, that arrogance and all that is, is a real thing. Um, why do you ask? I'm really curious to know why you ask though, now that you've heard my opinion on the matter. Because it's so hard for them to change, and ultimately they they kind of create their own self fulfilling prophecy where they build their own demise. Right? They they reached a, they will reach such a state that it becomes increasingly hard to actually adapt to the changing market circumstances. And before they do, they're too late. Going back mm -hmm. to the <laughs> to the early parts of the conversation, where people don't change organizations and teams don't change until they really feel the pain and the need to change and then it's too late so that's the same with the large conglomerates because they build that arrogance and they rightfully right they they can because they own the market mostly ebay or amazon or uh, you know tesla when it comes to the electrical cars in the beginning and now they, they slowly get overtaken. And there will be a point in the future where Amazon is going to be the same thing. So are we just repeating the same self-fulfilling loop or the same prophecy over and over again just to replace yeah. one with the other? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think there's always going to be innovation. But I do – like I, I've talked to a lot of business owners and startups over the years, and one of their – their models is we're trying to get good enough and big enough to get enough attention so that one of the big people buys us. Now, you know, hey, if somebody wants to come to knock on my door and give me, you know, seven figures to buy the little tiny niche I've carved out for myself, great. Like, so I, I, I'm not going to call somebody a sellout if that's their, if that's their plan. But I think to your point, like it, they creating our self-fulfilling prophecy of, if things are easy when you're small and when you get medium sized, they get harder. And if you continue to grow too quickly, the rate of improvement outpaces, the rate of complexity outpaces the rate of improvement. And before you know it, you're a six, seven, eight thousand person company that has a terrible culture and complexity out the wazoo and a bunch of these partial integrations and, and lift and shifts of all the little companies you've bought. And you can't even recognize the previous versions of yourself. And, and I, yeah. I, I worked at a company like that. Like I, I joined a company of about 250 people strictly be, well, not strictly, but based primarily because they were small, they were small, they were high quality, they were innovative. 
There was a bunch of thought leaders there that I respected. And in between me accepting the job and starting, they got bought by one of the big five consultancies. So I immediately went from making a move towards what I thought was a much healthier environment for me to working for just another big conglomerate. And very predictably, the the culture eroded and people jumped ship at a frightening rate. Yeah, because that's that's one of the things that's usually being led with large, uh, like the large consultancy firms or any other large conglomerate is the culture. And I don't mean lead up or lead for better, lead into the ground. Mm. Because it's really hard to scale such a small sense of belonging kind of culture that usually startups or, you know, mid-scale companies have tend to have like we feel good we know how everyone is feeling we we can interact with everyone and all of a sudden you get bought up and you get this very corporate managerial traditional kind of style for some reason and you're done yeah and yeah it's it's very it's an interesting discussion that we I would love to get into especially if you and I can get a guest on here who knows who who can give us some advice or or give the the audience some even better stories because I know there's people yeah. out there that have direct experience in this like how do you grow from a startup where everybody's flying around in razor scooters building this amazing new product sleeping under their desk willingly to Five years later, you have a rabbit warren of cubicles and you're in a massive skyscraper owned by Evil Corp. Like, I am sure that <laughs> that is not an immediate journey, that there's a whole bunch of steps along the way. But what I do know is with success comes competition and with success comes money. And with money comes regulatory environments, comes lawyers and bankers and, and people attacking you, whether it's criminals or competition or whatever. And then defense kicks in and all those things seem to create this ecosystem of we have to protect what we have while improving. And that leads to governance and legality. And, you know, as soon as you start tacking zeros on to things, um, yeah. it gets out of hand. So what you're saying essentially is that governance is the root cause of all evil. No, not governance is not bad. Like I was having a philosophical di- dis- discussion with Martin Hinchelwood today about like alignment and autonomy. Like, can you be aligned and yet move independently? Um, and does autonomy or does alignment spit in the face of standards or consistency or self-managing? And I think yeah. all those things can coexist. Um but it's tough. I agree. It's tough. Yeah. I think that, and I think that's a perfect way to circle back to the initial conversation and to, to, to start wrapping up sure. this episode. Sure. Uh, the more that we grow, the more that we scale up, the more that we focus on regulating these things, going into a defensive mode. And I guess these kind of layers and, and, a more cor- a corporate, more serious culture layers get added. And we tend to forget what kind of culture that we want to have and where we want to be. And I think if there's anything that I would like the listeners to take away from this episode is to remember where you want to be and, you know, where you came from or to quote a f- famous philosopher. And I think that's the perfect ending to this episode. I'm still Jenny from the lock. <laughs> Jenny from the blog. Okay. Um, as we head into the weekend, what are you looking forward to? Doing nothing. Working out. That's pretty much it. Finally having a weekend that is not planned to the brim. Nice. What about you? Uh, I'm getting uh, getting some ink tomorrow, and I'm looking forward to watching the new Netflix movie, All the Light We Cannot See. It's uh, It looks like a really interesting movie, and uh, I've been waiting for it to hit, and I think it's out as of yesterday or today. So, yep, that's going to be my weekend, nice. I think. Sweet. Yep. What kind of tattoo are you getting? Uh, assuming that you didn't mean ink for your printer. No, I did not mean ink for my printer. What's a printer? Anyway, uh, I'll show you next week, but uh, I think you'll agree. It's there you go. Yeah. The one behind you, it, it, it'll be on brand for me. Let's I'll just leave it at that. And I'll, uh, I'll show it to you when it's real because a lot can happen between now and being finished with it. So we'll see. <laughs> All right. 
All right. I'm curious. Dude, thank you very much again for this conversation. Have a good weekend. Yeah, you too. That is all for today. Thank you for listening. If you liked this episode, let us know by hitting that like button, share it with friends and colleagues, sharing a message on LinkedIn, joining our warm and welcoming Discord community, or attend recordings as a virtual audience. You can find all the relevant links in the show notes. We hope you'll tune back in for the next episode of the Mastering Agility Podcast.